If you have your Bibles, if you will, turn to Matthew's Gospel, uh, chapter 17. I know your week has been full, as has mine. Uh, I'm sure you've experienced uh, a lot of good things, and I am confident that you probably have faced challenges as well. been encouraged this morning uh, in our looking at our texts and being reminded of our call to worship, uh, how God has been so gracious uh, in just continually speaking to His people and calling His people to come to Him. Uh, we read that in the psalmist and just being reminded of just God's grace and goodness in feeding, protecting, caring for, uh, all along the way, giving them His Word, all along the way, pleading for them to come, uh, and longing for that communion with them. Uh, when... Uh, and then we, you know, we read there uh, as we looked at our confession. Paul was there uh, in in Athens, and he's there in the Areopagus, and and there are all these philosophers that are there, and and they don't know about Christ, and and God has graciously sent Paul there in the midst of that kind of setting uh, to even say to them, uh, listen, <laughs> you know, I, we understand that you're ignorant of it. Now he's about ready to, he's getting ready to, 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 to do away with their ignorance. Said, he had, God is going to judge us and he is going to judge us through this one that he has sent. And he has placed his mark upon him and it is a mark unlike any other mark on anyone else. Uh, he was not disqualifying and setting aside the death of Christ, but he put the mark on his resurrection because there has never been another one who rose from the grave to live. And, and Adam, in your prayer, uh, I was just reminded again that you know Christ's resurrection stands in that way that points to the fact that there will be judgment, but points to the fact that the believer, that we have something to look forward to because Christ rose from the grave. He is sitting, waiting for the moment for Him to come back uh, and to uh, establish His rule and reign as His never has been done before. And He's waiting to do that. And his resurrection put him, if you will, in that place to do that. We're not waiting for him to be raised, but he is already raised. He's alive. He's interceding for us. And he's coming again. And God just continues to be so gracious toward us in reminding us of these things. And throughout Matthew's gospel, I've been reminded of that. Just over and over again, Christ comes, the incarnation. And he begins, when he begins his earthly ministry, uh, you know, he begins, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent. Uh, before him, John the Baptist comes and says, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent. A constant call of saying that judgment is coming. God is good and gracious. Listen to him. Listen to him. Listen to him. And you know what? The same is true for us today. We're right back there. We're constantly being called on. Listen to him. See God's glory in him. Listen to Him. See Him for who He is. Don't be confused. Don't be mistaken. Don't pass Him off. Uh, don't be apathetic toward Him. 
but a decision has to be made about Christ. Uh, and it's just tremendous that we live in a day when, when those things are still so relevant, so real for us in our lives and so real and so relevant for all the people who are around us who give, who now, currently, are giving no attention to Christ. Some are confused. Some don't know who He is. Most of them don't care who He is. But they're going to care. They will care. Uh, and we have the privilege today to, to, to give consideration to that. Again, as God speaks to us through His Word, you probably already noticed things are just ramping up in Matthew's Gospel. This, this story, this narrative as we've been following along has just been ramping up and it's building and it's building. Well, it's building all the way to Jerusalem. This thing is ramping up to when Matthew uh, in his gospel then begins to share how he does die, how he is crucified, how he does go through all these things. And then at the very end of Matthew, we hear the, the kind of crescendo, if you will, where here the resurrected Lord is standing before his disciples and he is commissioning them and now go out and tell. And all along through Matthew, we've been hearing about things not to say this, not to say that, uh, there's some things that you can't talk about yet. There's some things that you don't know yet. But when we get to the end of Matthew's gospel, they know, they've seen the resurrected Lord. And, and now there's this, this great commission that is given uh, to go. Everything is ramping up to that. And we see that even again today uh, as we give attention to chapter 17. Let's look at verses 1 through 13 uh, together. Uh, I am really going to try for us to make it through the chapter today because I think that there's some things that are so related in the whole 17th chapter uh, that we need to hear together. So some things may not be elaborated on in all the ways that they could, uh, but we want to get to uh, the end of the chapter. In verse, in verse 1, And after six days Jesus took with him Peter and James and John his brother, and he led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, uh, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, uh, it, it is good that we're here. Uh, if you wish, I'll make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And he was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. And when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. Uh, but Jesus came and uh, he touched them saying, Arise, have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, uh, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, uh, Jesus commanded them, uh, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, then why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he answered, Elijah does come, uh, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come. And they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. 
we only have to read this account and, and realize, as we've mentioned, that uh, it is of incredible importance. And, and there's several reasons why. And I want us to look at these reasons. And you may want to jot some of these down. Uh, but first, we really need to note that the immediate context. Uh, over the last couple of weeks, we've dealt with that context. Peter has just confessed that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. We've already mentioned how his profession was divinely given. In other words, the Holy Spirit of God made it clear to Peter that Jesus is the Christ. He didn't come to that on his own. Jesus said that he didn't come to it on his own. We looked at texts uh, that will tell us that he couldn't have come to it on his own. It was an impossibility. And yet, the Holy Spirit came upon him and helped him see and understand that. And he made that confession. And Jesus affirmed Peter in that. And then he declared... Uh, uh, if you will, uh, he, he said this. Uh, he said, Peter, you're the first to come to this understanding. And because you are the first on you and on this confession, I'm going to build my church. And then he says, and death shall not prevail against it. Death will not prevail against it. I want you to think about that for just a moment. Uh, we have already, we've prayed for sister churches We've talked about the fact uh, that we're, we're not in this alone. Well, we haven't been in it alone. For 2,000 years, the church has existed. Uh, those who have gone before us, who's, who are laying in their graves now, wherever it is that they have been buried, they have gone before us. But death has not prevailed against the church, and death has not prevailed against them because of the resurrected Christ. When Peter was confessing that you are the Messiah, uh, the Son of God, when he was saying that, he didn't understand in fullness what he was saying. But all along the way, Jesus is pointing, I'm going to suffer, and we're going to see that again today. I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die, and I'm going to be raised again. And when, he, when Peter is confessing this, he is confessing the reality of a resurrected Lord by virtue of that Death cannot harm the church. And if the Lord tarries, the church is going to tarry all the way to the very end. And if He comes back in our lifetime and we're alive, then we'll be here and we will not have died and we'll go on to be with the Lord. But if, if, if the Lord tarries 2,000 more years, you and I are not going to be here. But for those of us who have trusted in Christ, death is not going to prevail against us and it's not going to prevail against the church. And, and that was His point. It's, it's, it is this, that Christ's church, the one with which Peter has rightly, and we continue to today, rightly and sacredly hold to the truth that Jesus is the Messiah. He is Lord over everything. Uh, His eternal intelligence and eternal force and power act every moment of everything every day to hold everything uh, together. His atoning sacrifice on the cross uh, is what enables the sinner, those who are elect in Christ, to be saved. His resurrection gives us life and His intercessory work uh, on behalf of His brothers and sisters and those that we are in the church and those who are going to become a part of the church as they trust in Christ. These are the defining marks of the church. There's not a church apart from it. These are the defining marks of the church. It is established on nothing else. And it is held together by nothing else. We need to make note of that because 
what they see in the transfiguration of Christ uh, speaks to this very thing. The second thing that I believe is important here is that Peter, after having confessed rightly by the Holy Spirit's revelation to him, turns around and rebukes Jesus. We looked at this last week. Turns around and rebukes Jesus for speaking of his own necessary suffering. And following which, Jesus clarifies the terms of discipleship. He makes clear what it means to follow him. Uh, if you weren't here last week, I'd encourage you to go back and, and look at that text and listen to that message. And, uh, and, it's, and from that, Jesus is saying, this is what it means to be a disciple. Uh, and I, I didn't mention it this way last week, but I do want to say that this week. There's not another way to be a disciple. There's no other way of following Christ. What he lays out for us whenever he says, if you'll back up there in chapter 16 and verse 24, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to to what he has done. He was pointing to the very fact that, hey, uh, the life of one who follows Christ is not going to look much different than the life that Christ led. Not in the way that he carries himself, but also in the way that he will suffer, in the way that he will struggle, in the way that life will be hard, in the way that he may be persecuted. This is not just this is not some super Christian way of following. There's no middle ground. We either follow Christ or we don't follow Christ. Now certainly we don't all begin at the same place. And certainly throughout the course of our lives we find ourselves at very but we are maturing in Christ if Christ is in us and we are moving toward that end. So following Christ according to the picture that Jesus has here Following Christ in that way, that is a given for every believer. He clearly lays out those expectations. One of our prayers for our churches, and even as Adam was praying for them a moment ago, even our sister churches, is for us to not misunderstand what it means to follow Christ. Why? Well, Jesus said that they would be judged accordingly. It will be That'll be a point of consideration in the course of the judgment. Which caused me even this week to think back just how important it was whenever Jesus was speaking back in Matthew chapter 7. And you may want to turn there, but beginning in verse 21, uh, it was clear. We talk about following Christ. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, and on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And I'll declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. Uh, those who would say that they were followers. But Jesus makes very clear what it means to follow him. So we see how important Jesus' clear statement regarding discipleship is. And it is for those who were considering Jesus then and it is for those who are considering Jesus today. So if we are here and we have not yet trusted Christ and we're considering Christ, 
pay attention to what it means to follow Christ. We want you to know that. We want you to know that. It needs to be true in my life. It needs to be true in your life. And we need to be moving in that direction in our following of Christ. And here's the part we shouldn't miss. And I said it just a moment ago, but I want to say it again. There's no lesser option. That is the reason a ministry, a church, or even a witness for the gospel cannot and should not state less than this. So, uh, churches, ministries, uh, gospel presentations that somehow or another are afraid to mention what it means to follow Christ. We've, we've adopted a lesser, a lesser option that's not, it's not given in Scripture. It's not there. And I just encourage you in that. Third, while it's clear that the disciples, especially Peter, are growing in their understanding of what Jesus is trying to help them see, this account does intensify the teaching and preparation. It's clear that this event is at least in large part for the disciples, but certainly just consider this for a moment. Here Jesus is. His face is set toward Jerusalem. In fact, uh, most folks believe that this took place about six months before His crucifixion, about six months before the Passover in which He would be crucified. Now can you imagine throughout the course now His earthly ministry being three years long? Two and a half years of that gone. He knows where He is going. He knows when He's going to get there. We know that He knows because He has avoided other things and will bypass and avoid other things to make sure that He gets to Jerusalem on that Passover. Can you imagine what an encouragement it would be to be in this setting and to have the opportunity to hear the Father speak over Him again, This is My Son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. Can you imagine in his humanity for a moment his fatigue? Can you, imagine, can you imagine for a moment in his humanity his disciples around him and just not quite getting it and just not quite getting it and then to have the Father to speak over these three and to speak over him in that way to again intensify, to have the Father in that moment to, to bring upon him his his glorious appearance so that they could see and understand His glory and know that, yes, this is the Messiah. Why? Because all along Jesus has been telling them, and He's going to tell them again, even before we get to the end of this chapter again, that, they, that, that He must suffer, He must die, and He must be raised. It is absolutely necessary. Picture that for just a moment and how, how, how glorious that must have been for him. But now think about the disciples. This is being done for them because they do not yet get what it means for the Messiah to be a suffering servant. And fourth, we mentioned this, but it intensified the reality of and the witness of the glory of the Messiah. Now think about it here. Here, Moses, Elijah, Peter, James, and John. Now we're not fully sure what this, this uh, state that he was in. We're not fully sure what it, We just know that he was glorified. We know that his face shone bright like the sun. That his clothes appeared, appeared as being just, just brilliantly white with light. 
What we do know is, is that it had to be an incredible experience for Peter, James, and John. And we know it is. Because if we track on through the course of the rest of the New Testament, they don't ever get away from this moment. Now when they're coming down the mountain, they're told not to say anything until after the resurrection. And they don't. They don't say anything about it until after the resurrection. But even when they begin writing, just hear what John has to say in his prologue in John chapter 1. He said, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. You know what he was referring to? He was referring to the glory that he saw there on that mountain that day. He saw the glory of this one Jesus as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. He said, And John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said he comes after me, ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Out of his understanding of this glory, out of his recognition of this glory, he began to come to understand the grace of God being poured out over and over again. He went on to say, For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one's ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. Now, he's never seen God, but John would say, but I saw him. I saw him on that day. He was glorified in my presence. I saw him. And certainly he had not forgotten the experience when he wrote uh, in his first epistle, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, which we have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it. And we testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. And Peter didn't forget it either. In 2 Peter chapter 1, we hear, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of His majesty, for when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born down from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. They had not forgotten that. And years later when they're writing, they're still pointing back to that experience. But remember, it also has to be a wonderful experience here for Moses and Elijah. It has to be a wonderful experience. Here we have the one who is known as the lawgiver, Moses, and probably, probably among all, one of the greatest defenders of the law, the prophet Elijah. Uh, in fact, just last week, I believe it was, in our call to worship, uh, we read from the 18th chapter of 1 Kings, and, and all that took place there as we read that whole chapter, he was defending the honor of God and defending the law of God. And here we have both of these men in the presence of the glorified Christ, and they're talking to him. And if we go to Luke's gospel, we find out what they were talking about. They were talking about his soon departure from Jerusalem, talking about his death and resurrection. Now picture just, just a moment. You have three disciples who are here looking at Christ, the Son of God, 
And, and we're not, he, he's not an equal among equals when he's with Moses and when he's with Elijah. No, he is their God. And there they are talking about what is about to take place in Jerusalem. Now think about that for just a moment. And in the midst of all of that, let's see what Peter does. Look in verse 4. And Peter said uh, to Jesus, he said, Lord, uh, uh, it's good that we're here. In other words, he recognizes just how wonderful it is that they are there experiencing this. Because all along the way, God has been revealing to them of the glory of Christ. All along the way, Christ has been speaking to them about, about His Messiahship. And Peter has just not, had just within a matter of days had just confessed that He is the Messiah. And He's saying, Lord, this is good. It's like it doesn't get any better than this. It's good that we're here. Uh, let me just go ahead and build three tents. One for you, one for Elijah, and one for Moses. Y'all stay here. We don't even have to have a tent. We just want to stay here with you. Think about that for a moment. That's the kind of experience they're having. But there's a problem with all of that. Moses doesn't want to stay on the mountain with Jesus. Elijah doesn't want to stay on the mountain with Jesus. They've just had the conversation. He's going to Jerusalem. He's going for his departure in Jerusalem. Why? So that they can have salvation. So that they can have life. So that their sins will be forgiven. So that they can experience the resurrection. As great and wonderful as it was for them to be standing there on the mountain talking with Jesus, they don't want to stay there. They want Him to go to Jerusalem. Why? The whole reason that He has been saying all along to His disciples, it's necessary that I go. You see, Moses doesn't have eternal life if Jesus doesn't go to Jerusalem. Elijah, as great as he was, and as great a prophet as he was, he doesn't have eternal life if Jesus doesn't go to Jerusalem. And Peter, James, and John, they don't know it yet. They don't want to stay there on the mountain with Him. They don't want to stay on the mountain with Him because if He doesn't go to Jerusalem, that is as good as it will ever get for them. And then the rest of their life would spend would be spent separated from God for all eternity. That's the point of all of this for them, is so that they can come to understand the necessity of what has to take place in Jerusalem. Well, they don't build the tabernacles. Moses and Elijah leave. Jesus and His three disciples come back down the mountain, heading toward Jerusalem. They haven't yet understood the fullness of what it meant for the Messiah to be the suffering servant. They're going to. They haven't yet understood how Jesus was to fit into the, the, the specific current political realm of things because they're looking for the Messiah to come back and to deliver Israel. And for them, it just made good sense. He's here what does that mean for us right now? What does that mean in this current political climate? And I've thought about that this week. We often ask ourselves the same question. 
How, how does God work in the midst of this current political climate? He's ruling, he's reigning, he's in control. What does that mean for right now? And all along the way, Jesus is pointing, don't worry about the right now. Don't worry about the right now. This kingdom isn't the kingdom that you are to serve. This kingdom and what's going on here now, you are living here, but you, if you're a believer, you're not a citizen of this place. Does it matter what goes on here? Inasmuch as God has placed us here, it matters in that sense, but this is not what we're living for. And he was pointing his disciples all along. This is not the kingdom that you want. This isn't the kingdom that you need. This is not the kingdom that will last for eternity. And they haven't understood that yet. And they haven't understood what it means for the Messiah to be Lord and for Him to be supreme over everything and for them to look at the supremacy of Christ in such a way that all they want to do is to be with Him in glory. They haven't understood that yet. I wonder today if we've understood that. I'm asking myself, do I understand that? Am I growing to understand that? I believe that part of our spiritual maturation, our sanctification is to that end. To where more and more all we want is Christ. And that all these other things that we just, we just start letting them fall. We just start letting them fall. We start letting all the other ambitions, all the other things in life fall to the wayside. All the other things that seem important, just let them fall to the wayside because they bind us, they hold us down, they drag us down rather than us looking to Christ and His supremacy. And all along the way, this is what Matthew is trying to communicate to the church what the Holy Spirit is seeking to communicate to the church, but all along the way is what Christ is trying to help His disciples to understand. This passage at the end of the day leaves us with two truths. One is that the glory of Christ is at the heart of who we are as believers. It's at the heart of everything. And understanding and seeing and recognizing that glory and grabbing a hold of it and grabbing a hold of Him is at the very heart of what worship is. It's the place where we learn to trust and obey. It's the place where we learn to trust and to worship. Jesus, now, just remember, He just finished telling them what it was to follow Him. Why would you give your life? I mean, there are a lot of good things for us, at least in our culture, in our age. In fact, that's one of the things that I find that, that so many people my age and a little older are most troubled about in the course of where we are as a nation because they have good reason to believe that their children and their grandchildren and their grandchildren's children are not going to experience some of the same good things and some of the same good opportunities that they have had. And they're probably right. They're probably right. And that troubles them. And, and I can appreciate that. I can appreciate that. But in the course of this, looking ahead beyond that, 
when we're looking at Jesus, we're looking at who is supreme. And it is in that that we seek to worship and long for Him. We seek to recognize that herein is the Christ. And all along the way, Satan has tried to keep him from going to the cross. And he'll continue to do that. That was the reason that he was so intent on tempting him. Tempting him to do what? Tempting him in such a way that he would become tainted and that he would be unworthy to atone for sin. Peter, he's not meaning to do that, but he's trying to keep Jesus from the cross. And all along the way, Jesus is saying no, because it's necessary. And by the power of God, by God's plan and design, He didn't stay away from Jerusalem, and He didn't stay away from the cross. Listen to what the author of Hebrews writes. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, Christ likewise partook of the same things, that through death He might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it's not the angels that helps, but He helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Chapter 4 and verses 14 and 16. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed from the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace and help in time of need. And then Paul writes to the church at Corinth, For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. I hope you hear this. It was necessary for Him to go to the cross. And all along the way, Matthew is pointing to that, and the disciples have not yet gotten it. But remember, it was necessary for Moses and Elijah. It was necessary for Peter, James, and John. It's necessary for you. It's necessary for me. And by the great work of God, He did it. And the second thing is, is His glory, as I said, should cause us to trust and to worship Him. Now let's press on. Let's look at verse 9. And we uh, read it earlier, but let's look at it again. Uh, and as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, uh, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. In other words, you stay silent until I'm raised from the dead. Now the point here is the resurrection. And you would think, okay, well, they get it. They get it. Well, let's read on. Uh, and the disciples ask him. They don't ask him about the resurrection. Uh, they're kind of distracted about this whole thing to do with Elijah. They're distracted. And so what do they do? They turn to Jesus and they say, uh, then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? In other words, that's what they've got on their mind. They don't have the resurrection. That went over them. That went over them. It said, why did the scribes say that Elijah must come? And Jesus answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. 
But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but they did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. And then what do they understand? Then they understand. This is what they understand. They don't understand the resurrection. But here's what they understand. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. In other words, flip over to Malachi chapter 4 just a minute. And, and you see what he's talking about. In Malachi chapter 4, beginning in verse 5, it says, Behold, I will send you Elijah. Now remember, this is the last prophet before the last prophet. In other words, this is the next to the last prophet before the last prophet. The last prophet, Old Testament prophet, the last Old Covenant prophet, prophet is John the Baptist. Malachi is the one who precedes him, and there's about 400 years difference there. Okay? And so Malachi, by the, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes, these were his last words, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a degree of utter destruction. They understood that. Those who had been teaching, the rabbis had been teaching that Elijah would come. And Jesus said, yeah, their interpretation was right. They got it right. He has come. He's already come. And they understood that to be John the Baptist. So they don't understand the resurrection. So they're, they're understanding more and more along the way, but they still don't get the resurrection. Now look at what happens. And when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him and kneeling before him said, Lord, uh, have mercy on my son, for he has seizures and he suffers terribly, for often he falls into the fire and often into the water, and I brought him to your disciples, and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. And then the disciples came to Jesus privately. Notice this. Came to him privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, Because of your little faith. Probably better translated there, because of your poor faith. That word translates better poverty, but because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like the grain of a mustard seed, which is what? We already know it's small, so that's little. So that's small. You will say to the mountain, move from here to there. And this is kind of proverbial, if you will. In other words, the way to say that things can, that are impossible, that are accomplished in their day, was to say the, the mountains would be moved. We have similar kinds of sayings. We're going to move this mountain. It's an impossible, boy, it's going to move, move this mountain. And he says, and, and, it, and it will move, and, and nothing will be impossible for you. What is nothing to be impossible? Nothing impossible for you in the context of the kingdom's work. That's what he's saying. That's the context. That's the context. So what is he saying here in this text? Now, we're following along, okay? 
We have just come through this period where He has been transfigured before the disciples. They get the part that Elijah is John the Baptist, that He's come. In other words, pointing to the fact that, okay, this is the Messiah. He is here. John the Baptist pointed to Him, and He is here. Still not sure what that means. Still not even sure what the resurrection means. They're still coming out of the fact that he says that he is to suffer and Peter says, no, this can't be. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. All of this has taken place. And then they come down and he comes to at least the other nine disciples who were there. And they have been casting out demons all along, mind you. So this is a pointed text. They've been casting out demons all along. Remember, he has sent them out just the twelve. And what did they do? One of their works was to cast out demons, and they cast out demons. We don't have any reports in Scripture that they failed in casting out the demons that they were casting out. They were sent out with the 70. They were part of the 70, and they were sent out. And you know what they did? They did the same things. They cast out demons. They healed diseases. They did all these things. Don't have any reports that they have run into anything that has been impossible for them. Here, this man brings this boy, and they can't cast this demon out. And they're wondering, why? Why? It seems that they have become presumptuous, at least when I'm looking at it, in the power that they had been given before. Because Jesus points back to their faith, and He says, not talking about small faith like the faith of a mustard seed, it doesn't get any smaller than that. He's saying your faith is weak and it's poor. You've been relying on what you have been doing in the past. And if we go to Luke's Gospel, we find that the reason, he says, this, this can only be done by prayer. What's he pointing to? He is pointing them to realize His supremacy and the need for faith in Him, trusting in Him as they move forward as they move forward in the rest of their days, as they move forward in the rest of their ministry, because He's preparing them now for what is coming. He's preparing them for what is going to come after His resurrection. We know this because He's already told them, don't talk about what you have seen until after you have seen Me raised. They don't understand that yet, but He is pointing them to that kind of faith. What is that saying about us today? I think the point, one of the points that Jesus is making is that this power isn't, this, this power isn't magical. It's not magical. It's rooted and grounded in the objective work of God. So, for instance, for us, and I was thinking about us as far as application for us. The reaching of people for Christ is not grounded in what has happened in the past with us and our various ministries. I, I know for me, but, but I think for some of us, we have just become presumptuous that people are going to flock to churches, and they have in some of the churches that we have been in, and they haven't in other churches, but that people are going to flock to churches. And Jesus is pointing us to the fact that 
in these post-resurrection days that the work of the gospel, this work up here, mind you, the work of the kingdom, which he says, nothing will be impossible for you. That's what he's pointing to. That that kingdom's work, nothing will be impossible for you, but that there has to be faith and trust and work and service because he has already said what? He has already said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. In other words, all this other stuff has got to be dropped. We have to look to him, trust in him, believe in him, have faith in him, and he's going to point us ahead again. I want to point us ahead again to Matthew chapter 28. Then what do we do? We preach, we teach, and we baptize. All of that is falling within this category. And then notice what happens in verse 22. And they were gathering in Galilee. Now, they changed, okay? All right? They've changed. Remember, you back up over here in chapter 16 and verse 13. Most of this seems to have occurred around Caesarea Philippi. Remember, they kind of moved away from moved away from the, the Jewish setting and it moved into the Gentile area. Now they are coming back into Galilee, back into the Jewish area. And then Jesus said to them when He gets back into Galilee, now it's important that we recognize here from Galilee, we're going to begin, we're, we're starting a straight track then to Jerusalem. But here's what He says. He tells them again, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. And they shall kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And now, instead of Peter saying, no, that can't be, what happens? They were greatly distressed. Should not have been distressed. But now they're greatly distressed. In other words, their spirit is troubled over what they're hearing. Not at the point where they're pressing against Him and saying, no, it's not going to happen. But at the reality of thinking about what is getting ready to take place. But see, He has just spoken to them before that. But nothing is going to be impossible for you if you trust in Me and My supremacy. And then look in verse 24. And when they came to Capernaum, okay, not just in Galilee, now they're in Capernaum, right here in the the city there. They're coming back into the thick of things. The collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the tax? Janice, I'm going to pick on you because this is the way she asks questions. Does this not happen? I said, why don't you just ask me, am I going to do it? She said, are you not going to do this? Won't you just ask me if I'm going to do it or if I've done it or not? (laughs) Well, this is the way this is framed. Does your teacher not pay the tax? And Peter said, yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first saying, what do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their son or from others? 
And when he said from others, Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them. Go to the sea. Cast a hook. Take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you'll find a shackle. Take that. Give it to them for me and for yourself. It's kind of an interesting story. At the end of all of this, we are bracketed in this chapter by Jesus being transfigured and now this miracle and it compresses all of this together. What was going on there? Was this just a a really neat fishing story? No, no. has nothing to do with that. This really didn't even have anything to do with the government. This tax was being taken by the Jewish people and it was a temple tax. In other words, once a year, everybody was taxed. Every man was taxed. uh, This two drachma tax. And it was for the continuation of the temple and its upkeep and its ministry and all of that. And so they haven't been in the area where the Jews are. They haven't been in Capernaum. But as soon as they come back in and the folks are gathered around, the question is asked, Peter, doesn't ask Jesus, but ask Peter, does your teacher not pay the tax? In other words, y'all haven't paid the tax yet. We know you haven't paid the tax. Does he pay the tax? It's kind of a point of testing. And, and Peter said yes. And I don't know if Peter said, well, yeah, sure he pays it. Or, yeah, I guess he pays it. Uh, I, don't, I don't know how that yes came. But the answer was yes. And I'm not even sure if he really knows or not. Maybe they had paid it before. But Jesus catches him. He speaks for Jesus. And Jesus catches him and he says, I love the way it comes about what do you think, Simon? It's kind of, you really think we ought to pay it? That was the question because he asked this question. Who do kings tax? Do kings tax their family or do they tax other families so that their families can be taken care of? And we know what happens, don't we? Who gets taxed? The other families. The other families get taxed so that the king's family can be taken care of. And Simon says, from others. He doesn't know where Jesus is going with this. From others. Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. In other words, what Jesus was saying, Simon I don't owe this tax. And I want you to get the picture here. Simon, I don't owe this tax. That temple is mine. That temple is my father's. I don't owe the tax. Simon owes it. He says, I don't owe the tax. And he was pointing ahead to remember that temple is going to be destroyed and in how many days will it be raised up again? In three days it will be raised back up again. 
We'll see that again in Matthew chapter 25 when we get there. But the point is, in looking at that, Jesus is already telling him again, Simon, you professed and confessed that I was the Messiah, the Son of God. You heard my Father say, this is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. It was just another point to say, Simon, do you understand that I'm the Son of God? That temple stands for God and is His house. It's going to be torn down, but is His house. And since it is His house, it necessarily means that it is my house and I don't owe the tax. But I love it. See what He says. However, not to give offense to them and then the miracle. Go down, take a hook and line, throw it in the water, the first fish that you catch, pull it up, open its mouth, and you'll find a shackle. By the way, Simon, that's enough for you and me. Take it. Pay the tax for me and for you. Do you get it? He says... I'm the son, I don't owe the tax. I'm going to show you again, Simon, that I'm God. How many ever have ever caught many fish with nothing but a hook? If you're snagging fish, you do that. Maybe he put bait on it, maybe he didn't. All Jesus told him was to put a hook in the line, hook in the water. How many of you have ever caught a fish and found money in the fish's mouth? I've caught a bunch of fish. I've never found a coin in a fish's mouth. Jesus was pointing again to the miraculous work of God. Pointing Him again that I am the Son of God. And I want to end with this, and this is why I think it's so incredible. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. I meditated and meditated, I still am, and am in wonder of that last phrase for this reason. Jesus didn't owe the tax but he paid the tax for him and for Peter what else did Jesus not owe he didn't deserve to die he was not the one to be held accountable for our sin but what does he do he pays our sin debt by His atoning work on the cross. And in doing that, what does He do? He paid it. Not because He owed it. We owed it. He paid it. And He's pointing Peter to the fact, I'm paying this for you. 
And what I am doing in my suffering, I am doing for you and all of those who will in time confess the confession that you confessed that God placed in your heart that you don't understand the fullness of yet, but you will. I want us to understand the fullness of it. If you haven't trusted Christ, I want you to understand the fullness of what He's done for you in Christ. And do what? Trust and obey Him because He is the Son of God. For us as believers, live like we are citizens of heaven. Live like we're citizens of heaven. Let's pray together. Father, I confess that I have not fully understood the magnitude of the glory of Christ. I want to. And I want us to as a church. Father, I don't know that I've understood fully the supremacy of Christ in all things. I know I haven't, but I want to. All the stuff that's dragging me down, I want it gone because I want to be with you. And I want us to want to be with you. Help us, Father, today, just as you did with Peter, just as you have done with everyone else, and awaken us and open our eyes and our hearts to the reality of the glory of Christ. In whose name we pray, amen.